Today is a very special episode of the podcast, as it is our first and most likely only interview with a recording artist of 2021. Today's guest is Jack Hughes from Wang Chung. Now, Wang Chung was a very popular band in the 80s. They had big radio hits with Everybody Have Fun Tonight and also Dance Hall Days. And movie fans might recognize them as being the soundtrack artists for the 80s movie To Live and Die in L.A., which was directed by William Friedkin. Jack is the frontman of the band, and he recently launched a solo career, actually last year in 2020, with an album called Primitive. He released his second solo album this year, and that's called Electroacoustic Works 2020. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to have him on the show to talk about not just that album, but some fun Wang Chung topics as well. Electroacoustic Works 2020 was released this past September. There is a single for the album called We Gotta Work Together, and there's also a music video uh, for another song, which is called Sheep. That is out as well, so you should check out both of those for an introduction to the album itself. So over this next hour, we're going to talk about the new album and what it's been like launching a solo career in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Remember, his first album, Primitive, was released in March of 2020, so some real unfortunate timing there. (laughs) And then we dive into an assortment of, of fun Wang Chung topics, including some ad campaigns that Wang Chung was a part of for both Michelob Beer and Ford Trucks. We then talk about some of the many many pieces of media that feature Wang Chung music, like The Walking Dead or Breaking Bad, Grand Theft Auto Vice City, and of course, To Live and Die in L.A., which was directed by William Friedkin. Plus, Jack tells me about some of the artists that inspired him back in his youth and even still today, namely guys like Bob Dylan and Todd Rundgren. And finally, I even got Jack to tell us the story of the time he sang Hot In Here by Nelly on national TV. Yes, you heard that right. Jack once sang Hot In Here by Nelly on national TV. It's a very fun story. We saved that one for the end. It was a real treat to hear it straight from the source. So this was a real fun interview. I enjoyed talking to Jack quite a bit, so I really hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed hosting this. So if you want to learn more about Jack's new album, I would encourage you to go to his website, jackhughes.com, and follow the link to his Bandcamp page, jackhughes.bandcamp.com. That's where you can buy both uh, the new album and the record he put out last year as well. Both records are available as digital downloads, CDs, and vinyls, 
and you can get signed copies. So definitely jump on that. And of course, you can find Jack on social media at JackHughes1 on Twitter, Jack Hughes on Facebook and Instagram. And of course, Wang Chung is on every social media platform as well. So without further ado, here's my interview with Jack Hughes from Wang Chung. I just have to come right out of the gates and tell you, I saw uh, you and Nick Wang Chung perform at Summerfest in my hometown of Milwaukee in 2010. And I just want to tell you that that was one of my favorite concert memories at Summerfest. And I just wonder it's, it's if one of my it's one of my favorite gigs ever, actually. Is, is that right? Yeah, yeah. No, I sometimes uh, when people sort of say, you know, do you have any great memories of you know live shows? That will be one of them for for sure. You know, because I felt when we came out, you know, the place we're playing in a kind of tented area, you know, and there were maybe sort of three hundred people sitting around, you know, pretty casual. But as we played a sort of half hour set or whatever it was, 40 minutes, the place gradually filled up. And by the end, there were people I could see standing outside and, you know, there was a whole vibe. And, uh, and we played Dance All Days as the last song, I think. And the audience response was just something else, you know. And I remember standing right at the front of the middle, in the middle of the stage, uh, and just taking the applause, you know, because I think in the past, not in that, recent past, but certainly back in the 80s, I found it quite hard to deal with all the sort of chaos and stuff, and even with acknowledgement in a way, you know, and, um, you know, it was sort of kind of like, yeah, let's just move on to the next thing. But this, I thought, no, this is something you've worked for and something that many people would give a great deal to experience, you know, and, uh, and that kind of affirmation, and it was a fantastic feeling, and I, and I really value it deeply, you know, so everybody who was there cheering and clapping, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that's just so great to hear as, as yeah. someone who's, there's so many, been so many magical moments at Summerfest over the years, I'm, I'm glad that that you experienced that as well. And that's my memory of it too, because it was a, yeah, it was like an afternoon show. And at first yeah. it was sort of the, the normal crowd you would get at one of those stages. And then, yeah, yeah, when at the end I turned around and I couldn't believe it was totally full. I've never seen that on a stage, yeah. you know, at that time of day. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Well, hopefully yeah. Summerfest will have you back soon. Well, I hope so. It'll be great to play again. You know, obviously great to be doing some work in the States again. You know, yeah. Been there for a couple of years now, you know, so. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, let's dive into the, the solo work you've been doing these last uh, two years now. Um, Primitive was released in March 2020, and we are still living in the pandemic some year and a half later. Yeah. And I imagine when you were originally putting that first solo record together in late 2019 or whenever it was, mm -hmm. you weren't anticipating what happened in March of 2020 when you put it out. So no. what were your original plans and then how did you adjust to the new normal with this launch of your solo career? Mm. Well, um, I guess the, the plan was that we were going to do a launch gig. I think it was on March the 21st. Uh, and that was booked at the sort of um, university here in Canterbury. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I guess I was hoping we'd get some people, you know, some journalists down and it would create a bit of a buzz and, and from that maybe we, we could sort of 
you know, hook onto some festivals and things. And uh, so, yeah, it, it would have been a year of probably doing a little bit of uh, promotion of Primitive and some Wang Chung stuff where I would have also promoted Primitive <laughs> and, uh, you know, just see, try and get it to sort of snowball, you know. Uh, I know there was, uh, there was a friend of mine who was talking about the possibility of maybe working, doing gigs in some music colleges, you know, because, um, you know, I've done a bit of teaching in the past. And, uh, you know, he was sort of saying that the kind of music I'm writing is, uh, has got this sort of jazz tinge to it in a way. Um, but it's not the jazz that kids are taught in these places, you know, the kind of, if you like, the Keith Jarrett, Pat Metheny style thing, you know, which, um, to be honest, I'm not a fan of, you know. And, uh, and I think there's something that, uh, in what I'm doing, that, that's rooted in, sort of British pop music, well, and my experience of American pop music as well, uh, that, that's got a sort of a kind of edge to it uh, and where I work with the harmonies and stuff and the melodies for that matter, uh, that I think might be a, a sort of welcome break from their usual diet of what I consider to be fairly bland music. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, So, yeah, so who knows how that might have panned out, you know. But as it turned out, there was uh, the pandemic hit and uh, and after a kind of a while of actually you know i mean i know it was a difficult difficult time for a lot of people but uh for me you know living on my own in this house um with a lot of recording gear lying around you know it was uh you know to begin with i i just kind of relaxed actually and enjoyed the the silence you know the lack of traffic the lack of airplane noise not that i get a lot of that where i live you know but it was noticeably quieter and uh um, but after a while i started thinking yeah just let's do some more recording you know and uh and I tried to be spontaneous and there were various things that were uh, inspiring me, if you like, to, to write more, more stuff, you know, so uh, we can get into that or, or whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> Absolutely. We're, so were both of these two records uh, produced primarily at your home studio? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. So the first uh, one was I was living in a little apartment right in the centre of Canterbury, which is the town that I live in. It's a sort of town around about 60 miles southeast of London and a very historic city and obviously with a historic music tradition as well, you know, which um, I'm not sure that what I'm doing particularly fits into that. Um, but nevertheless, I'm writing and creating music in Canterbury. <laughs> so it must have something to do with it, you know. Um, and um, yeah, so Primitive was written in this pretty small apartment and uh, somehow I did manage to record it. I remember one particular piece um, as a piece on it called Cut, which is just a solo acoustic guitar. And I got the idea for it literally while I was eating breakfast, these sort of like harmonic things around about 11 in the morning. And I thought, I just need to record this while the guitar has got this particular, it was in normal tuning, but sometimes just the way the strings are very finely tuned. And so uh, I sort of set up a couple of mics and, and recorded it. But, you know, I know there were trucks like backing up this little narrow street to deliver to the supermarket underneath and stuff, you know. And how I didn't get any of their sort of reverse light noises, yeah. and stuff like I, I don't know, you know. But um, yeah, it, it was it was a great environment to work in, and and I think uh, very concentrated, you know. And um, I, I had high focus on that album, and there was a lot of songs coming out, you know, almost each day. I would get ideas and stuff, and uh, yeah, and it, it quickly turned from being just sort of a kind of cathartic trying to write these songs to being a an album to being a double album which uh, is something I'd always wanted to create because uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, when I was at that critical kind of teen kind of age, uh, there were some 
very impressive double albums, Beatles sure. Wipeout album, Springs oh. to Mind, of course, but Cream's Wheels of Fire, Hendrix's mm. uh, Electric Ladyland, Blonde and Blonde. Mm-hmm. You know, the list is quite a long one, you know. And each of those albums, you know, if I didn't know at the time, I certainly came to know. And, and I always loved that sense that you had an artist kind of doing their thing, but in a rather more unfiltered way than, um, than you would get, uh, you know, with a conventional album, you know. So I guess that's what I wanted to try and achieve, you know, that, that sort of uh, get it all, <laughs> yeah. get it all, you know. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Were you able to play any solo dates I know you didn't tour, but have you done any solo dates like uh, around where you live in the last year and a half? Yeah, yeah. So, in fact, we managed to play one on October the first, twenty twenty. I think one of the very few gigs that took place. And uh, yeah. you know, after the after the March gig got cancelled, it was just a kind of like pin a tail on the donkey. You know, the Golbenkian Theatre, which is where we were playing. So, you know, let's do October because it's all bound to be over by then, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so that date was in the diary, and in the UK things did loosen up around that time and uh, they sort of theatres were sort of opening but with a lot of social distancing and stuff oh. you know. but we just kind of kept going and, and rehearsed uh, uh, I think we just had like three rehearsals beforehand so it was pretty um, seat of the pants kind of stuff you know 
but uh, we nevertheless did the gig, and people seemed really grateful for it, you know, and um, yeah. Very good. Were these the, was that the first show that you ever did outside of Wang Chung? Um, for a long, long time, yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I suppose actually I've been doing gigs with my jazz quartet. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah, so I did all of that stuff, but, but that's a sort of different ballgame in a sense. So this was the first kind of like rock band, me singing um, up front kind of thing that I was doing. Although I must say that my jazz work was gradually achieving this hybrid of the sort of instrumental jazz stuff that I did in the in the noughties uh, and starting to combine it with some sung stuff. So I was doing a cover of Robert Wyatt's Sea Song and I was also doing a cover of um, Talk Talk's Merman. Um, Mark Hollis passed away sort of uh, a couple of years ago and around that time, uh, I mean, I knew um, uh, Laughing Stock. It's one of my favourite, favourite records, you know. And I was thinking about learning that song. And, uh, and after he passed away, I thought, well, this will be a great tribute to him. Yeah. You know? So um, that's something I want to do. We did record some of these, these gigs. It was a sort of strange band, a hybrid of my jazz quartet, uh, using a very kind of jazz drummer, very filigree the way he was playing, and using Sid Arthur, which is a local Canterbury band who have now morphed into sort of my band. <laughs> and, um, but I had the two drummers, two bass players, these two different styles of playing, really the rock and jazz things just kind of combined. And uh, we did two or three gigs using that lineup and, um, and recorded the one in Canterbury. Uh, and you know, Joel and I, who's the bass player in Siddhartha and my sort of uh, guy who helps me with all of my solo stuff. You know. Uh, we keep promising ourselves to set aside a week to try and mix this, uh, these, these live recordings. Ooh, okay, very cool. Hopefully an incoming live album. I, I love, yeah. I personally, I love live recordings, so I would, yeah. I'm going to keep an eye out for that. Absolutely. So let's talk about the new album, Electro yeah. Acoustic Works 2020. Right away, that title, to me, immediately invokes the, some of the events that we've been living through these in the very recent past. Yeah. Uh, 2020, obviously very tumultuous year and the first single from the record we got to work together touches on the pandemic black lives yep. matter protests the election we in america here had uh, recently it was very contentious yep. uh was that the first song you wrote for this record no it wasn't no okay. it was a, a little way down the line um I think the first song I wrote was a, a tune called Fruit Bat Reset. Oh, yes. I like so, that one. Oh. We the people on our planet think that we can think it through. Back to normal, how we ran it. Back to what we used to do. But it's a fruit bat revolution coming at you. If you buy the vinyl, well, the CD as well, but it's, it's more apparent on the vinyl when you open the gatefold. There's this uh, photograph of a, it's like a freeway bridge uh, yeah. close to Canterbury, and it had this graffiti on it, Fruit Bat Reset, and Fruit Bat was spelled F-R-O-O-T. Oh. Uh, and, uh, and I just kind of thought, wow, this really does kind of capture something about this pandemic, you know, this <laughs> slightly ludicrous story that it comes from Fruit Bats <laughs> in a Chinese wet market. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm not saying <clears throat> it's I think not true. I, I, who knows? We're not in a position, I don't think any of us or ever, to yeah. know what's true and what's not with these sorts of massive things. You know? Absolutely. Um, but the whole sense that this little creature could reset the whole planet, basically. Yeah, <laughs> some kind of a, yeah and I was going to call the album Fruit Bat Reset to begin with, but a couple of friends of mine said, well, we can't really do that because it's like graffiti, the graffiti artist. 
fruit bat is his tag, you know, so it's like oh. you can't just, you know, steal it, you know. So yeah. I thought, well, why not? Right. <laughs> but, yeah. but anyway, I, I decided that was discretion was a good idea. <laughs> And uh, I went for the more technical electroacoustic okay. works. Um, but the Fruit Bat Reset thing, yeah. So I, I wrote this song, uh, which is a curious little almost Prince type demo that I did, you know. And then from there, that set me off on this new recording thing. And, uh, and I did a whole load of stuff and then came back to Fruit Bat Reset at the end and kind of thought, you know what, I don't want to like redo all the drums and kind of, you know, polish it up. I just want it just let it be what it is, you know. So that's when I came up with this idea of just having Fruit Bat and another track called Sounds of the Universe, just these two demos basically on a 45 RPM single as a sort of free thing within the vinyl, 12-inch, uh, you know. So, uh, so, yeah, so Fruit Bat Reset was the starting point. So straight away, I guess I wanted to write about what was happening around me, if you know what I mean, as opposed to writing some more angsty love songs, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that album all the way through definitely feels very contemporary, um, yeah. at least lyrically. And yeah. the Fruit Bat reset sonically sort of reminds me of sort of like you said with Prince, but also like uh, Groove is in the Heart. You remember that song yeah. from the 90s? That a very yeah. upbeat, lively kind of, but yeah. uh, kind of a bizarre thing. Uh, very cool. I, I like that one. Um, yeah. Going back to um, the single, which is probably the most political, I guess, of it. You know, yeah. it's a call to action type of song. Yeah. What was the writing process specifically for that one like? They're burning down statues and calling out the names. You got the politicians squirming and they're trying to shift all the blame. Like I record things on my iPhone, you know, like riffs that come into my head and stuff, you know. And I was thinking one morning, like, oh, that was a very cool riff that I recorded like about, you know, like four months ago or something, you know. And I went back to the many recordings I've got on there. I found that, you know, da -da 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 that, that riff sort of thing. And I thought, yeah, I just want to write something around that. Um, and I guess pretty early on, I came up with a We've Got to Work Together idea, which was really inspired a bit by, uh, I don't know if you know the Buddy Miles album, Them Changes. Okay. It's called, yeah. So he made it pretty much after he left Hendrix's band, I think. Oh. On that album, you know, it's the one, he's, he's on the cover, you know, with a big hair and a big guy and you know I mean with this little drum kit but it's got like an American flag on the bass drum and on the toms you know it's the whole thing it's just American flag you know and on that album he does a cover of uh he just changes the Hendrix song but he also does a cover of Neil Young's Down by the River oh. uh, and um another song called Dreams as well and I just love that record and I love that he as a black musician is tackling head-on white rock music and doing it great. <laughs> you <know>? yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I was kind of sort of thinking, you know, when I was growing up at that time in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, uh, I didn't really see colour. You know I mean, because of artists like Hendrix, you know, who's a you know black guy, but a rock guitarist, you know, because of Motown, which in the UK was massively popular among you know, my friends who weren't that into music necessarily, but they were really into Motown and dancing and stuff, you know. It all just seemed like rock music and we were all people making the rock music, you know, and some of our black guys were just like absolutely amazing in the way they approached it, the minimalism of the way they thought about things, you know. I wasn't particularly into jazz. I, I didn't really get jazz, um, partly again, because I think the Beatles were 
you know, very, in a sense, anti-jazz, you know, and jazz as it existed in the UK in the 60s was sort of like what your parents listened to and, and kind of like not hip in the least. <laughs> now I get that there was a whole swathe of sort of fusion type musicians, especially Canterbury based guys, you know, who were doing very interesting things, but I, I wasn't hip to that at the time, you know, although subsequently. You know. So anyway, yeah, so we got to work together. I, I was trying to get back to that sense of like, come on, you know, rather than emphasizing all the differences, let's emphasize the similarities. Do you know what I mean? Emphasize yeah. the fact that uh, this is really a sort of way of diluting class war, in a sense, which is the important thing, which is if you're poor and you've got no money and you've got no access to education and stuff, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're white or black or whatever, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or you're, you know, you're disadvantaged. And, uh, and I, I was sort of thinking, you know, I want a song that kind of emphasizes that really and, and basically says, wake up a bit. Do you know I mean you're getting pushed into a corner here? Uh, and there's a there's a much bigger fight to be had than, than this one, you know. Um, so uh, and one of the first things I did was sent a sort of a demo version of the song to a good friend of mine, uh, Baby and Salah, who's a black singer who I've who she sings on Primitive, and she's also sung on some of the Wang Chung stuff as well, the more recent stuff that we've done. And um, she and I get on really well. She's a great presence, you know. And uh, and I just said, can you just do some vocals on this track, you know? And, and she did, like, some beautiful harmonies. And then she did a whole kind of improvised, like, ad-lib track, you know, to, to very little, actually, you know. But that ad-lib track I used on other songs sort of thing, you know, because the, the way the rest of the album was created, especially side two, was to take, you know, like on the on Logic, you know, you, you had the song with all the tracks and stuff, you know, uh, and, um, and I kind of started thinking that what I loved particularly about We Got to Work Together was the middle bit, you know, the bit where it's in, is it five, four or seven, four, I can never remember, you know, and it's got this little guitar riff. And, uh, and I sort of wanted to develop that. So I took the logic file and started a new file, kind of deleted all the song, as it were, but kept Baby's in, uh, improvised stuff and then just played another song over the same tempo thing, you know, and then, you know, let her vocals where, where they came up, uh, just let them be sort of thing. Occasionally I'd chop it and just shift them a little bit or whatever. But uh, so her presence starts to inform a lot of the, the second side, do you know what I mean? And, and I love how you hear things on the second side that you can't really hear her seeing on, on, on the first track, you know. So, um, so, and I think what I was trying to do on the second side of acoustic works, the electroacoustic works, was create this almost like set of variations on we've got to work together, you know. It didn't really work out like that because the tunes are too diverse, but that was the impulse of it, really. Well, it speaks to, I think, the, the interesting approach you took uh, about having a very clear division between side A and side B, which is, yeah. I think, sort of maybe a rediscovered art, but it was a lost art for a while when it comes to yeah. just the construction of an album. It definitely yeah. felt like, um, not unrelated, but different projects when I listened to the yeah. first half and then the second half. Yeah. Um, so that I, I, as, a, as an album fan, I like that a right. lot. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And that was obviously really inspired by Metal, the Pink Floyd album, you know, which uh, oh. had the sort of five or six songs on side one, you know, some acoustic yeah. stuff. And um, yeah, sort of quite diverse, a bit unfocused on side two is Echoes, 
which to yeah. me is one of the most successful, if you like, long form prog pieces ever conceived, really, you know. And um, so, yeah, that, that was in a sense how I wanted the album to sit, you know. So you're right to pick up on that oh, division, cool. you know, you know, that they're, they're two different ways of looking at how you use a side of vinyl, basically. You know? Oh yeah, absolutely. So uh, uh, another sort of uh, lost art that I think is uh, come back a bit more into style is music videos. Uh, that's definitely uh, you know ebbed and flowed. I know the first music video you've done for this album is for Sheep, and yeah. you put that out just a, like a couple of weeks ago. That was a fun yeah. little video. How did you enjoy making the video? Yeah, good. Fear no future. No, no past, but of grass. I've always been a little reticent about videos, you know, and, and the whole kind of like singing a song to camera that yeah. you're not really singing. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and in the 80s, obviously, MTV meant I was doing a lot of videos. Oh, yeah. um, it was very kind of foreign to me to begin with, and it's not like I'm a sort of was ever trained to do videos, as is patently obvious if you look at the early Wang Chung videos. So I felt quite awkward in front of the camera, and I didn't really get that deeply involved in the, in the videos. I just sort of, uh, the Wang Chung stuff, you know, I just let okay. people get in, you know, get on with it. Yeah. And, you know, there's some, you know, like I think um, the video for Everybody Have Fun Tonight is a really cool video. You know, well, that's and, an iconic one. I mean, that yeah. one, stylistically, that's very memorable. It is, it is, it's cool, you know. And I think, you know, there were various, like the Tilden Dine LA's, you know, being directed by Freakin and stuff was was great, you know. But I'm just not an actor, do you know what I mean? I, I think yeah. the difference in the sensibility of musicians and actors, I know it's more blurred these days, but I, I've yet to see someone who's a cool musician successfully act, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because they somehow can't let their egos go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the way you need to do as you, if you're an actor, you know, so. Well, I've been listening to a lot of Bob Dylan lately, and uh, Dylan's uh, 80s output, um, when he does music videos, as much as I love Dylan and is an incredible artist, he looks so miserable and so uncomfortable yeah. in all those videos he w was forced to do. <laughs> you know, Tom Petty always said he didn't like making videos either, but he, made, he ended up making some good ones, so maybe you're, you're closer yeah. to that than Bob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, when it came to making sheep, you know, I, I, yeah. I seen the work of these uh, these guys. It's a, a company, a company based in Canterbury here called Block Art Media. Okay. Uh, a couple of guys and a girl, and I had a meeting with them. And basically, they did a video for a friend of mine, which I really yeah. liked. I liked the way they shot the sort of outdoor yeah. thing, and they got this sort of countryside, -y, rural. They'd shot it and got that kind of, Pete was saying it, they call it the golden, the golden hour, you know, this kind of when the light is really, the sun's setting a bit and it's got this kind of glow to it, but they know how to sort of create that slightly artificially as well, or at least enhance it, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so I say, yeah, we sort of need something like that, you know, but I don't want to be singing the song into the camera, okay, right, just, yeah. just, I don't mind being in it, <laughs> sort of thing, but I'd rather, it, there's more sheep in it and stuff you know, than there's me in it, you know. So they were kind of took that on board, but uh, kind of sensibly, in a sense, had me singing it to camera and stuff. So we, we arrived at a sort of compromise. But uh, yeah, I like the, the quirkiness of the video. I really enjoyed shooting it. It was yeah. and uh, we shot half of it 
on location very close to where I live uh, in one of the just some of the farmland around here. Oh yeah. Uh, and then the other half we shot on Oxford Street, you know, yeah. uh, in, in London, and and that, that was fun, you know, and, and really funny in a sense in that we were like right on Oxford Circus with the kind of all the security cameras and police cars going by and stuff. And not once did they stop us and sort of say like, what are you doing? You know, I was just going to ask about how, how do you yeah. pull something like that off? So I guess it was sort of guerrilla style. You just had a, a camera out there. So nobody, nobody recognized you or nobody noticed what you were doing. It, it was just totally incognito. And that shot where I'm sort of singing the whole song to the camera, which was yeah. quite odd because I had my iPhone in my pocket, but I couldn't really hear it that well. You know what I mean? So I'm trying to lip sync there, but there's all the traffic and stuff. And everyone just sort of walking by and yeah. just like, don't seem to notice the camera, don't seem to notice me, which is exactly what I wanted. Do you yeah. Know what I mean? It was, it was, it was great. You know, <laughs> I was really pleased that's how it was. You know? That's fantastic. And it, it is a nice video. It is, I will say, beautifully shot. The cinematography yeah, in it is it very, is really very well cool. done. What made you choose that song to, to be a video? I guess it would be hard to do anything else. Yeah. <laughs> you know, having done, we got to work together, which we could have done as a sort of live video. Because for Primitive, I did a couple of live yeah. videos uh, in using a beautiful kind of Regency uh, theatre in Margate, which is about... 30 minutes from, from where I live, you know. So we shot uh, a long time on Whitstable Beach uh, using my band and obviously we're miming to the track and stuff, but we try to shoot it uh, as live as possible, you know, and everybody learned their parts and, you know, so it's, uh, it works pretty well, I think. You know? um, but for this, yeah, so we got to work together. We could have done like that. Uh, don't waste words. Could have done, but is that really a singly single, you know? Oh, okay. um, uh, cheap um just just seemed like I, I could see how that would would work you know yeah. and uh um yeah obviously we, we were thinking about doing the first long track on the second side you know like doing the whole seven minutes you know but frankly it will be quite involved uh to achieve that you know and um i, I think i did send it to a video director friend of mine but i never heard back from him <laughs> <laughs> just thought, but uh, yeah, so so sheep was sheep was the one, you know. And plus, I think it's uh, for me, it's a quite witty, light song in a way. Yeah. You know, I I certainly wrote it with that sensibility, you know. That uh, you know, because my my albums, you know, primitive especially, is like it's pretty, you know, every song is pretty dark and serious, you know. And I thought I kind of conceived the idea of the sheep song, but just out cycling. I mean, literally as it as it plays out is how I wrote it sort of in my head really while I was still out on this sort of cycling you know and um and I came back and I thought oh god can I really be bothered to write a you know to record a silly little song like the Beatles all together now or something oh, you know sure. and a voice in my head sort of said yes you really need to record this because it's your album's going to need this otherwise it's just going to be another really serious listen and you know yeah just give it a break <laughs> yeah right come, it gives the listener a chance to sort of come up for air you know catch yeah. your breath and one more track I, I gotta ask you about was um we don't go out Okay. So that one, I, I noticed that the, the, it's very atmospheric music and the lyrics is the song title sort of repeated yeah. again and again, sort of like a mantra. Now I am 
no good at interpreting song lyrics, so tell me if I'm way off base, but the the vibe I picked up on that, since this is a record about the last year and a half, was that sort of about the feeling of um, becoming sort of stir-crazy as a result of living at home and isolating and all that over these last uh, year and a half? Oh, good. <laughs> Thank you for not embarrassing me. <laughs> it was the sort of repetitive thing and, uh, um, yeah, I, I never sort of conceptualize songs a great deal bef while I'm working on them. Do you know what I mean? I try and let them sort of just float and stuff. You know? But I think uh, essentially I watched a, a YouTube video where this guy had taken apart a Joni Mitchell song and was, I forget which one, it's off of Corton Spark, I think. And, uh, and he was looking at the, this kind of very open tuning with a low C and the bass and, uh, uh, and how her chords worked. And, um, my son Jack had this beautiful Taylor guitar that, and he was moving out of London. He said, well, I look after it for him. So I went and got it and uh, restrung it. And in the process of restringing it, I kind of tuned it to this Joni's tuning, you know, and just came up with this um, way of playing this thing. And I just kind of liked the, the rhythm as much as anything, you know. And so I sort of just played one track and then double tracked it. And then without really planning much at all, just kind of tried doing the, the do, 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 do. And I wanted to create, uh, I guess, one of the pieces that I'm always coming back to is Steve Reich's Music for 18 Musicians. Uh, and I love the fact that that piece has a lot of marimbas, xylophones, um, bass clarinet and stuff, but it also has a couple, if not more, female voices just singing some of the parts, you know. So you get this kind of sense of these rhythmic voices coming through in a slightly disembodied way. So I was trying to get that. And I did it completely intuitively without trying to figure it out. And after a while, I remember going back to it and thinking, like, oh, God, they're all a bit out of tune. And maybe I should just, like, you know, listen to each part, write it out and try and sing it properly and stuff. You know? And it was such a job of work that I, in the end, just left it. I tuned a couple of, I just re-sang a couple of really out of tune right. notes and, uh, and just kind of left it out. So that, again, a rather light sheet was a sort of afternoon's work. Just, oh. like, just sort of left there, basically, you know. That sort of seemed to capture a vibe, you know. And certainly that slightly stir-crazy thing was, yeah, part of it, yeah. Okay, so uh, another thing we got to talk about uh, with the record is uh, your vocal performance. I know that Wang Chung celebrated its 40th anniversary a couple years ago, so one, congrats on that. That's <laughs> awesome. And, uh, you know, the big question is because there's, unfortunately, and I'm not going to, you know, tease anybody here, but uh, a lot of artists who came up around the same time you did, they can't sing the same way. Uh, uh, your vocals sound absolutely superb on this. So I've got to ask you, what's your secret to keeping your voice in shape? Yeah, I wish I knew. I think <laughs> not singing too much, <laughs> actually. Because okay. I think, you know, when Wen Chung split around about 1990, yeah. uh, um, I didn't really do any singing. Nick and I didn't do any touring until kind of 2009, 2010, around when oh, wow. Horace in... In Milwaukee, I think I did one bit of touring in 2000 with a with a really great version of Wayne Chung, actually, with an American musician out of Nashville. And uh, oh, cool. but we didn't really make an album or do anything. Uh, whereas when Nick and I got back together, we made Taser Up, which was this album that came out in 2012, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think in a way it's not having just really wrecked my voice during the, the critical sort of 
forties, fifties years, <laughs> sort of in thirties, yeah. maybe. You know, uh, and we didn't do a lot of touring even in the eighties, really. You know, we, oh. so so it's not. I'm no Bob Dylan on the sort of English tour. You know, it's uh, so most of the stuff we did was in the studio. But yeah, I'm just very fortunate. I think you know, um, I did a gig last night actually at my local record store. Just a little little in store. Um, so there's a shop called Vinyl Store Junior. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Very cool. Run by this lovely guy Nick, you know, and he was like, "Yeah, let's let's do it." You know, so yeah. he invited a few people. Some friends of mine came down, and I just played a couple of songs from Primitive, a couple of songs from your Electroacoustic Works, and I did a uh, an acoustic version of "To Live and Die in L.A." Actually, as a sort of curiosity. Um, but yeah, it was a great challenge. Is of course singing those songs, particularly say "To Live and Die," you know, which is quite a high register. Yeah, and you can drop the pitch of things sometimes, and um, um, but I like to try and do them in the original keys, you know. Yeah. So, so yeah. and I, I thought, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, my voice isn't like totally match fit, but I can certainly hit the notes, and uh, so I, I feel very grateful for that, very pleased about it. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, I think in uh, a basketball here we call that load management, where you're not <laughs> out there the entire time. That's it's interesting you say that. I had another recording artist on last year, a guy named Stan Bush who also has kept his voice in great shape all these years. And I asked him the same question. He gave almost an identical answer. He is not a, a road warrior where he's out on the road every every year. And he does like like hair metal voice vocals. So like he really, yeah. okay. those guys really have burned it out. And, uh, you know, he's kept it together. So I guess that must be the secret. Just, you know, moderate, you know, reasonable touring, not not like exactly. Dylan's never-ending tour, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. No, I, I was uh, one of the things I was listening to in the during the, the lockdown uh, months was um, his Rolling Thunder review oh. of sort of box set of like I think yeah. it's twelve or fourteen shows from that you know, and I must say after a while I, I can listen to it when people are around. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and you know, it's like not in, exactly in the background even, but you know it's got a great vibe to it. But when I listen to him singing, I think Jesus, no wonder your voice is like it is now. Because <laughs> you know, he's really pushing it and singing right in his throat and doing all the things that yeah. even the most just less one singing lesson would tell you not to do. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> that's great. If you don't mind the the quick off off to the side here, you're you're a Bob Dylan guy, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. This is just one of my, my favorite questions to ask Bob fans is, what do you think, did you ever get into his gospel stuff in the early 80s? Like, Slow Train Coming and Saved. Did you ever listen to any of those? Not particularly at the time. No. Yeah. yeah those but I do love them now. Slow Train, I think, is just awesome. You know, just really awesome. And I don't know why it's changed. You know, a friend of mine, uh, you know, is a massive Dylan head and has everything, you know. Yeah. And was saying to me, you know, the box, the bootleg set before last, uh, yeah. you know, of all the gospel stuff. And all. Yeah. Said, you got to get it. You've got to get it, you know. And uh, and I auditioned it a bit on Spotify and I kind of thought, oh, I don't know if I can take all these different <laughs> live versions, you know, that are also kind of, you know, variable, shall we say. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the vibe of that time and the songwriting from that time, I think is really amazing you know, really amazing. Let's uh, take kind of a, a bizarre left turn here. 
I, I, by the end of this, you're going to think just I'm a, a crazy interviewer because I have another totally oddball topic that I don't think, I don't know if you've ever been asked about this. So uh, pardon me if this is just too weird, but I have this cassette tape here in my collection. Remember these? And it's from a, a, a bizarre little piece of 80s ephemera. And I just sort of, I, I want to know if, if you remember anything about this at all. Uh, I'm going to show it right to the camera here, so let me know if this comes through okay. Can you see what that says? Okay, all right, yeah. So this is Michelob yeah. Night Hits. Okay, yeah. so for, for our listeners, for those who don't know, in the late 80s, Michelob Beer ran a series of TV commercials called The Night Belongs to Michelob, mm -hmm. and they featured uh, rock stars playing some of their songs, including Eric Clapton, Roger Daltrey, Phil Collins, Genesis, uh, Frank Sinatra, and Wang Chung. <laughs> so, <laughs> in the dark of the night, every time you're out of sight, I have to feast my life together in the dark of the night. The night belongs to Michelob. Campaign. Was that something you were involved with, or was that just a licensing deal? Yeah, you, you're saying it, and, and the kind of some light comes on back here. <laughs> kind of thing, but I don't remember a great deal about it. But which song did they use? Was it "To Live and Die in LA"? They they used two. They used "To Live and Die in LA" and later "Everybody Have Fun." I seem to remember that we were involved in sort of like redoing the vocal or something because it's, okay. it's got a different vocal on it, hasn't it? I think you know. So I was involved in it to that extent, and uh, and I think they were well paid. I think. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was, <laughs> so that was another good reason. Uh, but I don't think we were sort of like sitting in the studio with the Michelob guys, okay. to, you know, designing the ads or anything like that. You know, so uh, it was just a. Uh, a kind of one of those things that came up and uh and i think they were quite you know considered to be quite prestigious at the time sure? in a way because they were using interesting well good artists you know so well that's that's good company to be in you know clapton and genesis and sinatra i mean that's a right. that's a nice group yeah i it's it's just a bizarre little piece yeah. of pop culture that i stumbled across and uh yeah. I, I get a kick yeah. out of those ads we did do an advert for i think it was ford i know oh, we were, okay. We went to Detroit and we were working in a studio there and they wanted us to write a kind of to live and die in LA type oh. soundtracky thing for one of their car efforts. And I remember that was, we were in the studio and all the ad guys came in at one stage, do you know what I mean? In a yeah. slightly kind of clumsy, saying all the wrong things type yeah. <laughs> way that the yeah. guys would, you know, bless them and everything. You know? uh, but and I remember we played them this thing, which I think they were just completely, uh, uh. you know and then we've also had you know like in wait there's that sound uh that's that was on on the emulate on an emulator the emulator was a sort of cheap version of a fair light sort of early sampling field and it was this orchestral stab i forget where it comes from actually uh I did, somebody did tell me like a beethoven symphony or a the right of spring or something it's um but it just goes bang and, and it, we use it in weight quite a lot okay. you know, on the chorus you know
and uh, and I think I was messing around with that sound, and one of them went, "Hey, that's the Wang Chung sound." Oh, <laughs> and they seemed thrilled that we were going to use that sound on the track. So, uh, so, yeah. so that was also an ad campaign that that did make it to air Ford commercials. I think it did. I think oh, it got cool. there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I think it was us uh, sort of being reasonably abstract and kind of, you know, like sure. certainly no hit single in there. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's just so funny to think that like nowadays, uh, when a, a band gets their song in an advertisement, that is seen as like a great opportunity and something the band is yeah. often usually really proud of. Uh, yeah. But I know Steve Winwood complained that you know the. The press gave him the business about being in the Michelob ads. And I wonder if, like, just from your perspective, like, when you got involved with any sort of advertising back in the day, was, did you get any grief about it, you know, or was that, or did nobody care, you know, or was it seen as a good thing? Uh, There was a sense that, you know, it was, you know, rock and roll was supposed to be sticking it to the man. I mean, if you were working for these big corporate things, you was, in a sense kind of is a bit didn't smell good (laughs) and I totally respect that anyway and I think more so in the UK especially from a UK perspective us you know doing Michelob people here have never heard of Michelob you know what I mean (laughs) this thing American beer commercial you know so uh, yeah Uh, you know it's a bit like us using our name and you know everybody have fun tonight everybody Wang Chung tonight I mean that was highly frowned upon at the time as being like ghastly bit of self-promotion do you know what I mean within a song yeah. you know whereas now it's like god it's, it would even bat an eyelid if somebody <laughs> said their name a few times I mean it's like yeah what everybody does right you know well yeah particularly in pop, <laughs> pop songs now and with uh, rock yeah. art or, uh, ramp artists you know they'll yeah. they'll drop producers names in the track <laughs> which is very weird you imagine having to at the start of of dance hall days having to like mention whoever produced you as part of the song like that's that's a little bizarre (laughs) yeah so okay when we did it you know we were aware that it was like in bad taste but uh, considered at the time in bad taste but i kind of thought Screw them, really. Do you know what I mean? It's like if, if you've got a problem with it, I, and in a way, I was quite enjoyed winding this. Oh yeah. Well, do you know what I mean? It's like God, if you're concerned about that, you know. Well, in hindsight, that's what—that's sort of the secret sauce that makes like the song so timeless. Because that's the—that's the thing that grabs people's attention. Yeah. Is just you yeah. know all the other words, but like wait, 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 Wang Chung, yeah. and then you look yeah. up to see who did it. There you go. So I, I think that's fun. Uh, so since the ad campaign is over, I, I, I get to ask you, have you even ever had a Michelob beer? I have. I've drunk okay. Did you like it? middle Michelob beers, yeah, especially back <laughs> in the 80s. I'm sure they were on the rider, you know, on the, in the okay. dressing room and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not a good beer nowadays, just so for what I'm, I'm not really a beer drinker, but, yeah. you know, American beers all kind of tasted similar to me. Yeah. probably a terrible thing to say as well these days, but I don't know. Yeah. Well, the, the macros, I, th- I think you're spot on, but okay. Yeah. All right, let's, uh, let's punch forward a little bit more because I want, I got a little bit of time left here with you. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to talk about um, basically the 
thing that brought me to becoming a fan of Wang Chung, and again, this might be a bit of a weird thing, but I was in high school in the early 2000s, and I've never been much of a gamer, but the biggest video game of that era was definitely Grand Theft Auto Vice City, which is all about 80s music, and Dance Hall Days is featured prominently. I had heard, definitely heard everybody have fun on the radio, but Dance Hall Days on Vice City was the track that made me think, oh, I've got to look this band up. We were good on Christ When I And I wonder, is that something you've ever heard from fans before? Yeah. Oh, no kidding. I think a whole new generation of kids, if I can call you that, <laughs> as you were at the time, uh, uh, got into Wang Chung because of that, you know. And I, I've told a story a few times of a, a friend of mine, um, she was driving her son to, to school, you know, and he was sitting in the back of the car and I take your baby by that. Where, where do you know that song from? He goes, oh, my computer game, it's really cool. You know? And she was like, oh, my God. You know, it's like this whole new generation of kids um, getting into it in, in that way. You know? So, uh, And um, again, like many things with Wang Chung, um, it was completely out of the blue. You know, there was no kind of like us touting the business or stuff, you know, but, um, whoever was designing that game loved that track, wanted to use it. And... Uh, Obviously, they sought permission and stuff, you know, and, uh, and we were happy to give it, you know, but um, not, nobody knew at that time, I don't think, that it would be actually a, a, a real channel that would bring a lot, lot more younger people into, into the Wang Chun orbit. I, I think that game was sort of really ahead of the curve of the big um, 80s comeback that has we've seen over the last, you know, 15, almost 20 years yeah. Uh, I I think they were going for like a very Miami Vice, Scarface mm. sort of vibe, and Dance yeah. Hall Days definitely has that like cool '80s uh, yeah. a vibe to it that fits in quite nicely. So I, it's you know great game because of the soundtrack at the very least. So I wonder, you know, we're talking about advertisements and video games, and obviously you know To Live and Die in L.A. was you know on that on that film. You know, Wang Chung music has been used in a lot of media, and I wonder. I have two questions on that. What are the pieces of media that you know have grabbed the attention of younger fans and brought them uh, to becoming fans of yours? Mm. And and maybe what is a piece of media that used some of your music that made you the happiest to see? Like, is is mm. is there is there a moment in a movie or a, a TV show or something that used yeah. one of your songs that that made you really smile and, and be proud of it? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, certainly the the first question um the, the sort of track that sort of brought in another generation of people was the use uh, in the walking dead of a song called um space junk hey you dumbass yeah you in the tank you cozy in there Oh, yeah. And uh, that was a game, something that just came out of the blue. You know, Space Jump was a track that we recorded in the late 90s, 97, I think, as a sort of bonus track, in a sense, for our first Greatest Hits album. So if you wanted 
to do a great sits album and um, uh, shortest album in the world and all those jokes. You know. But anyway, they did the great sits album and they said, you know, can you? They gave us a bit of money and said, just go in the studio and do something new. So I had this space junk idea, and we were working with a producer called Adam Wren, who had worked with Left Field, and um, you know, it was a kind of dance producer. And uh, so he, he was great because he sort of worked on the loop and stuff, you know, and we just came up with this like acoustic guitar riff uh, loop. And um, I thought it was a great track, but Geffen didn't do anything with it because it's not kind of radio friendly, particularly. Oh. I, I sort of doubt that now. I think it, it is actually. Oh, but, sure. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but anyway, uh, so it was just sitting on this album. And then suddenly um, we got this request for it to be used in The Walking Dead, not realizing that it was going to be used for the end credits of the first episode of the first season, you know, and that Frank Darabon, who was producing that. Um, Great direction. Uh, yeah, was uh, a massive fan of that track. You know, God yeah. knows how he got to hear it or whatever, you know, but but that he specifically conceived that scene around Space Junk and, you know, um, so that, that, that was very kind of, that makes you sort of feel like, wow, you know, there, there is this sense you do good work. Um, and I say that with all due modesty sort of thing, but you do good work. People hear it and it catches their ear and it's, it finds its time. You know? Yeah. And it may not be straight away because that's probably like 10 years after it was released that it showed up in The Walking Dead, if, if not slightly more. You know? So, um, so yeah, that, that was a really cool thing. You know? um, other things, uh, you know, because the, the songs have been used in a lot of different movies. Um, well, another AMC property was uh, Breaking Bad, and they that yeah. featured uh, Dance Hall Days. Banner up! Um, everyone, hey, you guys, I would like to make a toast. You know, it was also great to be uh, have the name Wang Chang mentioned in The Simpsons as well. Oh, sure. <laughs> so yes. They weren't playing the music, but they were using the name. And tonight? I don't know. Well, I guess ultimately, you know, the, the time when I remember watching some visuals and listening to my music and being really almost moved to tears was sitting next to Bill Freakin watching the first screening of uh, To Live and Die in LA, where he'd used a sort of instrumental track that starts side two of the album, you know. Um, oh, just, okay. And he'd, he'd kind of, it, it just completely blew me away that the music and the images just mesh together in the way that they did, you know. And I so know not, that the, so not the title track, an instrumental. No, yeah. Initially, when we did the soundtrack, you know, he said to me, I don't want a song called To Live and Die in LA. You know, I want music, you know, to be the score, you know, to I can use. And he cited weight uh, as the kind of thing that he wanted, you know. So we worked up this track, called, which we called City of the Angels, um, uh, which is like a sort of 12 minute instrumental piece you know fast tempo you know modeled on the sort of sh the kind of things that weight does you know so very fast tempo but slow moving chords over the top you know and uh and that kind of is um what uh what i heard you know so that that when you watch the movie now there's the whole prologue thing which has the title track and uh you know the presidential motorcade and all of that stuff but once all that's passed there's this shot of a gun just firing, and then you get this shot out over LA, uh, sort of, I don't know if it's sunrise or sunset, but it's like this orangey sky and stormy and the palm trees are blowing. 
and it's just it just completely blew me away that image the colors of it and the way the the, the music sounds you know uh, this sort of choral thing that's kind of gliding downwards all the time you know and uh yeah that to me will always be in my memory as one of the great moments of Wang Chang and, and working with Bill Freakin and oh. you know, that whole experience it was just super <laughs> I've got one more truly bizarre topic that I, I don't know if you've been asked about recently. So again, going back to the early 2000s, uh, when I was in high school, uh, you made an appearance on a TV show called Hit Me Baby One More Time. Yeah. And uh, again, for those who are listening who don't know, that was a TV show that brought out some uh, 80s bands to play their big hit and then to do a take on a contemporary pop song. So you came out and, uh, you know, for example, like the Knack uh, came out, did uh, My Sharona, and then they did yeah. Are You Gonna Be My Girl by Jet, which sort of makes sense. That's a, you know, rock song, modern rock song. Yeah. You guys came out, did Everybody Have Fun, and then you yeah. took a crack at Nelly's Hot In Here. Take it on Nelly's Hot In Here, it's Wang Chung. Which, uh, I gotta hand it to you, you didn't mess up any of the lyrics, you had a good backup singer, you were dressed nicely, I, I think it worked. Um, how did that come about? It was, you know, they contacted us and asked if we'd be interested, which we sort of notionally were. And this was at a time when Nick and I hadn't done anything together for a long time. Oh, okay. And um, uh, we had these uh, list of songs. I mean, there weren't many songs left on the list. Um, Toxic was one, which I'm a huge fan of. Uh, but the other was uh, Hot In Here by Nelly. And I remember phoning Chris Hughes, who produced Points on the Curve, which is over your left shoulder. And, uh, uh, and sort of gave him the list. There were four or five tracks. And he went, Hot In Here, you should do that. And I said, you can't be serious. And he was like, no. You, you could nail that, that would be really amazing. So I sort of <coughs> did a little demo of it. Yeah, and just sort of got into it actually, you know, and, uh, and I've never done a rap song before in my yeah. life. And it is actually like super hard to learn it, you know, because it's less like a lot of lyrics, much more lyrics than your average um, pop song, you know. But, uh, but it was fun to do, and I think it did take people by surprise. Oh, big time. Did you have yeah. to perform that those vocals live on stage that yeah. night? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we've subsequently um, done a little remix of it, and it's going to be coming out on a compilation album in this in the UK. Um, okay. uh, now, I should remember what this album's called, but I think it's on Sony. And, and there's a whole bunch of uh, 80s bands who are doing covers of 90s hits, essentially, you know. So, um, yeah, let's just look out for that. It will be on the sort of Wang Chun 
information page oh, so sure. socials and stuff you know so uh, so look out for that but yeah they've done a great job they've done a remix of it because i did a sort of whole i did the whole song and yeah. on the tv show we just did a little two minute version of it you know right uh, but they've taken the whole thing and really made it great and i think they're going to be pushing it in the uk here because it's uh it's one of the better tracks on the album i think so. oh that's terrific yeah. so that's coming out like in a week or two weeks max or that's amazing okay yeah. wow that's too funny did you enjoy doing that tv show I did. I yeah. remember it well, actually. Yeah, yeah. And it was nice to be, you know, I hadn't been in LA for a while. It was nice to be, we were staying in a hotel on Hollywood Boulevard, I remember. And it was just lovely to be back there, actually. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, uh, you know, TV shows, they treat you well and stuff. Mm -hmm. and, um, so it was good. I forget the name of the guy who was comparing it. He was quite funny and stuff. And, uh, and the other bands on it uh, were funny, you know. So it's good. Just, just a really enjoyable thing, you know. Absolutely. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so uh, you mentioned uh, just a little bit ago that, you know, Wang Chung, of course, was on Geffen Records. Did you ever meet yeah. David Geffen? Yeah. What, what do you make of that guy? Uh, I mean, I, I remember him being in a room in, in a meeting, and it was a meeting about the name of the band, actually. It was really early days of oh. us signing, you know, signing. Because we'd done this uh, before the band was called Wang Chung, you know, H-U-A-N-G. Yeah. Uh, and we'd done an album for Arista in the UK. And of course, nobody could pronounce the name or, and nobody talked about anything but you know, why have you got a Chinese name and all this yeah. stuff. So we were going to change it to something else, although we couldn't think of anything particularly. Yeah. And I remember David Geffen in his meeting saying, like, it's a great name, you know, just spell it differently you know, so that people oh. aren't alienated <laughs> by it, basically, you know, uh, or not quite so alienated by it. So, uh, so yeah, so it was him, him who said, spell it Wayne. You know, no kidding. Yeah. Wow. So I met him then. I think I met him on another occasion, you know, but I didn't like get to know him. He wasn't the kind of guy who would be hanging around, sure. you know, much. You, know. You, you never saw one of his uh, infamous temper tantrums or were on the no. wrong end of that? <laughs> never did. No. Uh, the guys we went dealt with at uh, Geffen were, were great, actually. Where John Kalodner okay. was our okay. AR guy, who's legendary John Kalodner, you know, who dressed like. Um, you know, John Lennon on the cover of Abbey Road. He always wore a white three-piece suit, hair, <laughs> round glasses, the whole thing. And he was, yeah. John was like, uh, I'm not sure that he always saw eye to eye with, especially my more arty tendencies, you know. But he was very honest, unlike many A&R guys I've known. Oh, yeah. you know? uh, and he, he sort of had a kind of tunnel vision thing. And then as far as what we did came into his vision, he'd support it. And if he didn't get it, he'd tell you, you know, <laughs> and, uh, but you know, he was loyal to people that he signed, you know, and, uh, and did his best for them. So he was a great guy. And it was a great time to be on Geffen because it was a really was a small label on Sunset Boulevard, just before you go into Beverly Hills, their offices were at the top of Sunset Strip. And uh, so it's a great time. I have very, very fond memories of all that. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. Well, one last question for you before we wrap up. And this is just sort of a, a broad topic. I know you've, you've spoken about so many musical influences that have uh, played a part in your career and life over the years. But, you know, when it comes to the music that you, you listen to today, what is the stuff that for you has really stood the test of time or maybe you've discovered recently that still really moves you the most that makes you want to create more music? You know, um, there's... Uh here in Canterbury, they have this record and CD fair every quarter, I think, maybe four times a year. And uh, there's a guy, a friend of mine, lives just down the street, uh, has a stall there, and uh, and he was sort of saying, "Is there anything I can look out for you? You know, because uh, 
Uh, and I said, you know what? Todd Rundgren's double album, Todd, uh, is an album that was, I was listening to it a lot in the sort of mid seventies, really, I, I guess soon after it came out. Uh, but I, that album, I, I think is just genius. You know, the, the, the again, the, the range of stuff from the kind of Gilbert and Sullivan cover to songs like um, The Last Ride and um, the first track, I can't remember what that's called now, but um, those songs really haunt me actually. And, um, and his whole approach to harmony, uh, you know, the, in the, from the songwriting perspective, and then the kind of really over the top production stuff that he does as well, you know. Uh, I, I just adore that record, you know. And, and uh, this friend of mine got me a, an original 70s mint copy of it recently, which I, so I've been listening to it again, and uh, it's just absolutely incredible that album. So that right now is my sort of go to. Um, Wrapping up here with uh, Electroacoustic Works 2020. What um, are you looking to do with your immediate future plans? I mean, obviously the pandemic's still in effect and I know there's all these sort of limitations that kind of restrict us, but what are you hoping yeah. to do, you know, in, in over the course of the next couple of years? Yeah. Are you looking to do more albums or touring? You know, I'd like to do a third album, a sort of trilogy of solo albums. And I've sort of written half of it, recorded half of it really. Um, oh, wow. And uh, um, yeah, so I'm really sort of, probably overthinking side two, you know, because again, I sort of think in terms of the vinyl thing, you know, but, and what that might be like and what it might be, you know. So, uh, so I definitely like to do that. I'm going to try and do a bit of work on that between now and Christmas. Uh, and then next year, uh, if things continue to open up in the way they have done in the UK, uh, in the States, I'd love to come over to the States and uh, do a bit of Wayne Chung stuff. And uh, if I could organise to do some, some solo gigs as well, I would love to do that, you know. So, um, so that's the, that definitely an ambition in the next two years to do a third solo album and to do some gigs around those three albums and uh, try and present them to American audiences who I think would love it. Actually, yeah. well, that's excellent. Yes, and uh, hey, if it works out, uh, you know, I'm telling you, Milwaukee loves you guys. You know, don't forget about us. <laughs> Certainly won't. No, Milwaukee, Chicago, that whole area has always yeah, totally. been great for Wayne Chan. We've always had a great time there and really appreciate the support from you guys. So oh, good, thank you. Good. Yeah, Terrific. Yeah. Okay. Well, then finally, what's, uh, what's the best way for fans to get the new record? And what are the different ways we can get the new record? It's not just digital. You mentioned that it's on, on vinyl, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it's on vinyl and CD, but I really recommend the vinyl version. It's on this limited edition orange vinyl, if you can, uh, yeah, take that. Uh, but the way it's presented, you know, you get the orange vinyl, you get that little 45 RPM single with it as well. Oh, okay. And I'm very proud of the artwork on this album. It's, uh, to me, that's a very important part of albums, you know. And the front cover was done by a really dear friend of mine. Um, we, we go back, I met him when I was about 14. 15 and we spent a lot of time together when we were in our teens and um he passed away recently um uh, about a month ago from cancer and stuff and uh, so he did the cover of primitive and he also did the cover of electroacoustic works and uh, so yeah the artwork for me is a you know a big testament to him and his his genius you know and uh, so yeah go, go go for the vinyl where you can really see his work on there you know? and in terms of buying it uh you can buy it through my website is, is really the best way to do it but uh i think you can get it through Bandcamp as well but uh www.jackhughes.com okay. is uh easy and uh yeah just just go there and um yeah we push them out and, great uh, 
Are there yes. signed copies of either record available? Yeah, stuff that's ordered through oh. my website. I I always sign it before. You know, it's either I or Joel post it out there. You know, so um, we'll, we'll oh, do the sign. Yeah, Great. yeah. Great. Yeah. You know, I, I like that you said that thing about uh, the artwork. Uh, you know, first condolences, uh, you know, for your friend. And, yeah. and of course, you know, album artwork is so important to the music itself because, I mean, for me, I have a huge record collection, and that started before I even have a, had a record player because yeah. I just love the artwork. I used to put the albums up on my walls, you know. Sure. It, it's yeah. just great pieces. And I have seen the covers on, on both Primitive yeah. and, and the new record, and, yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah. So that's a very nice tribute to your friend. Yeah, and certainly when I was, you know, growing up in a grey little town in the in the UK in the, you know in the, in the 60s, albums were the about the only colourful thing that, that you could access in a sense. Do you know what I mean? It's oh hard yeah. To imagine okay. these days, do you know what I mean? There was, but there was really nothing to buy. You know, but I remember seeing the cover of Cream's Disraeli Gears. It was like the most colourful, stunning kind of album conception that I'd ever seen. You know, it Absolutely. was amazing. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. So uh, yeah, vinyls, album artwork is the thing, and the whole gatefold thing with them as well is like it's uh, yeah, just a wonderful thing. Okay, well, Jack, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. This was a, a great conversation. I really appreciate you. Uh, uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I like the left field questions. And, uh, okay. it's all, yeah, it's all very cool. <laughs> well, yeah. you, you, you've made a, a great deal of music that has meant a lot to me. I just didn't want to let you down. I had to, I had to come yeah. at you with something different, so I'm, well, I'm glad you it's had It's really enjoyable, time. really enjoyable to get the, the different questions. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. And that was my interview with Jack Hughes from Wang Chung about his new solo record, Electroacoustic Works 2020, which is available now at his website, jackhughes.com, jackhughes.bandcamp.com. The album is available as a digital download, CD, and vinyl, as is his first solo album, and you can get those records signed as well. And of course, find him on social media at Jack Hughes one on Twitter, Jack Hughes at Facebook and Instagram, and of course, Wang Chung is on every major social media platform as well. And be sure you follow him, uh, if for nothing else, that official release of the Hot In Here cover, which uh, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing. And then a quick tease for what's coming up on this show. We'll have part three of our Dylan Through the Decade series, an artist retrospective of the Jefferson Starship. I have booked two interviews with authors. I won't say who just yet because we haven't set up the dates, but uh, we have two author interviews coming up before the end of the year. And of course, I can announce our first podcast episode of 2022 as an appreciation for Jack being a guest on the show here today. We will start off 2022 by doing a deep dive into the career and music of the one and only Wang Chung. So once again... Thanks to Jack for being such a great guest, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. With that, Jack will play us out with the single from his new record. This is called We Gotta Work Together. Take it away. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this now, that means you did this part already. 
Thank you. There is an infinite amount of content out there, so you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend this show to family, friends, or anyone you know who's looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in Facebook groups, subreddits, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at PlayThatPodcast. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash PlayThatPodcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash C slash PlayThatRockNRoll. Lots of great material, like photos and vlogs, on all three platforms. As Play That Rock and Roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four, please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal. Not just because it affects the algorithm, but also because it gives me something I can point to when pitching this show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chance I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here and play that rock and roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.